And this morning, joining me is Dr. Philip George, consultant psychiatrist at IMU, also addiction medicine specialist, that's his specialty. And uh, from Canberra, Australia, Dr. Peter Norrie, former chief psychiatrist. Good morning, folks. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Good morning. Now, I understand suicide, World Suicide Prevention Day is coming up. It's on the 10th of October, 2019. And it looks like, you know, in Malaysia, befrienders have come up with a statistic saying how often they get these calls yeah. about people, you know, considering it or wanting to consider suicide. Are we doing enough to fight suicide in Malaysia? Well, I think absolutely not. I mean, well, World Mental Health Day is on the 10th of October and the theme this year is suicide prevention. And we are definitely not doing enough to fight suicide. We still criminalize suicide, which makes it hard for people who have suicidal thoughts and maybe even consider suicide to even seek help. And we're too stigmatizing about mental health services and we don't provide enough as well. Right, but that's going to change, right? They're planning or they're hoping to decriminalize suicide in Malaysia? I've been hearing that for a while and I really wish it was on the table and we did it. But yeah, the moment that's done, I think we can move forward with this and we can start educating people and talking to people about suicide. Right. Dr. Peter, what are they Mm. doing in Australia? So suicide's not a criminal matter anymore uh, but the stigma is still very strongly there and so people struggle to ask for help mm-hmm. you know the the initiatives are very much coming from some of our NGOs and so we've got a, a program called are you okay which has a, a special day every September and so mental health workers get out on the street and talk to people the initiative of services is much more amenable and in fact one of the nice things that came out this year was a comment you know we hope it's not going to be another year before we ask are you still okay right okay that's really nice now mm. um, in Malaysia do you feel that the um, suicide statistics have somewhat improved over the years? Uh, No, not at all. In fact, uh, suicide statistics have actually suggested there's been a sharp rise. In fact, from the 1960s, we've seen about 60% increase in suicides. Wow. Hmm. Now, the problem is we don't have data because we've had a national suicide registry which lasted about two years, ran on a funding and stopped. And so we don't know the numbers. Mm-hmm. But some of the surveys and studies suggest it's always on the rise. All right. Well, that's something we definitely have to improve on and change, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, coming up, uh, the rise of amphetamine usage as sexual enhancements are causing a rise in HIV patients in Malaysia. We'll be taking a look at that next after Alicia Keys here on Light. And uh, with me on Mind Matters uh, from Australia, Dr. Peter Norrie, former chief psychiatrist, and our regular Dr. Philip George, consultant psychiatrist at IMU. And it looks like the rise of amphetamine usage as sexual enhancements is causing a rise of HIV patients in Malaysia. I did not know this. Um, how prevalent is amphetamine usage in Malaysia? Well, it's actually on the rise, and it's a little scary because, you know, we've sort of seen a decrease in heroin and opioid use which is good but the thing is after that there's been a rise in amphetamine use and that's been actually not only unique to Malaysia but around the region as well we don't have surveys to tell us the numbers but one of the national health and uh, national health and morbidity survey that looked at teenagers found that amphetamine was second most common drug of abuse next to cannabis where do you get this can you get it over the counter or is someone dealing you can actually (laughs) cook it in your kitchen oh dear Mm. Uh, what's the scenario in Australia so look again 
again, it's been very much on the rise. Statistics are considerably worrying for that. And the most worrying thing we see is amphetamine users are now presenting in our emergency departments. And unfortunately, the behaviour is very unpredictable and sometimes violent. Right. So you mentioned that they could get violent. What other effects uh, can it have on the user? Well, I mean, like most uh, drugs of abuse, people take them because they, they get a high. Um, and that high is there for a short time, but of course the high is never as good the next time, so they're continuing to use to get that feeling that they had the first or second time. Right. Can they get better um, with the right treatment, and what are the right treatments? Yeah, well, treatments do help people get better. In my own practice, I've seen people get better, and of course, with drug dependence, it is a relapsing illness. It's just Mm. like diabetes and hypertension, and so sometimes you know, people may relapse or lapse, and we take that as a teaching and learning and help them to, you know, prevent relapse for the future as well. All right. <laughs> Coming up, obesity, not caused by a lack of willpower. That's what psychologists are saying. Um, and uh, we'll take a look at how fat shaming can also affect a person next after Elton John and also the traffic update here on Light. On Mind Matters with me this morning from IMU, Dr. Philip George, and uh, from Canberra, Australia, former chief psychiatrist Dr. Peter Norrie. And uh, fat shaming has uh, been making headlines recently. And uh, top psychologists say that obesity is not a choice. And making people feel ashamed only results in them feeling worse about themselves and could have detrimental effects. Um, Let's talk about fat shaming. Can it really motivate someone and knock some sense into them? for them to be motivated to lose the weight and then become slim and perfect. You see, it's not 100%. Some people actually get motivated when they're spoken down to and told things and, you know, may actually change their lifestyle when people tell them things. But not, it doesn't work for everyone. And in most instances, it actually causes more harm than, you know, benefit. So, yeah, I don't think that's the approach that people should take at all. What are some of the detrimental effects of fat shaming on a person who may not be able to take it? Again, it's one of the main areas of stigma uh, where, you know, people feel uncomfortable about their size and so they will tend to withdraw from life. And so it's really a very difficult thing when, you know, they don't necessarily have that choice. Right. For example, children are becoming more and more uh, obese, Obese. especially in Mm. Malaysia, Southeast Asia. Mm. For those who have children in you know with this issue Mm. how then would you address this issue without making the child feel like they're being fat shamed or you know you know i think we should be parent shaming because the real factors here are the people who brought them up and made them think that it's okay to eat whatever you like and not control what's right and wrong Mm -hmm. so i think other people need to take responsibilities because we know that obesity is not due to wanting to be fat. Nobody just grew up one day and said, I want to be a fat person. But it's related to, you know, genetics and difficulties in childhood and stress at school, stress mm-hmm. at home. And so parents play a huge role. Starting straight away with, with managing healthy diets and actually not um, saying that, you know, eating junk food is okay every day. All right. Now, for those of us whose lives are, I guess, shaped by work, by school, school, by social environments, do we have a higher risk of obesity? Yeah, I mean, the environment that we're in actually has uh, influence on, you know, our, our, our own eating styles as well. So people who live in deprived neighborhoods or areas may not have the opportunity to actually access foods that are more stable and uh, balanced mm-hmm. and don't have places and areas to exercise. So, you know, I think it depends on environment as well. Mm-hmm. 
tremendous, tremendous social pressure. And so, you know, if, if all your mates are going down the road to uh, have fast food, you do as well, mm. even though it's not necessarily good for you. Yeah, I find that uh, it's the case sometimes here at the office. <laughs> I'm like, oh, what's for lunch? Oh, well, I guess your own per- taking on your own personal responsibility is, yeah. is something we all need to take a look at as well, isn't it? Well, coming up, teachers to be trained to spot mental health issues. Um, that We'll be discussing that one next after Nick Kershaw. I won't let the sun go down on me on light. On Mind Matters with me this morning, Dr. Philip George and Dr. Peter Norrie and uh, all teachers in England and Wales will be trained to spot the early signs of mental health issues in children as part of a package of measures aimed at prioritizing prevention. I think this is a great idea in Malaysia itself. Are teachers, you know, given some training about this as well? Not that I know of, but uh, we do get referrals from teachers and teachers do pick up children who may have psychological issues and problems so you know the most more obvious ones get picked up and i think it's about maybe looking at enhancing their ability to you know understand and know how to manage and also pick them up and know where to refer all right so for um, people in teaching professions or those who deal with youngsters i mean what are some of the signs to look out for well i think it's you know in children some of the most common conditions adhd or add Uh, attention deficit disorders and also maybe autism as well as perhaps uh, behavioral problems so it's a lot in their behavior Mm -hmm. and even emotional disorders like anxiety and depression are exhibited in their behavior more than you know in emotions right Mm. Uh, what's the situation in Australia are teachers trained to spot mental health issues there's an increasing effort through the education system for that but there's also if you look at it right through there's a program called mental health first aid which is presented um, in many workplaces and the whole point of that is actually so that individuals are more mm-hmm. aware. All right. Now, uh, what other countries are practicing this, um, to your knowledge, and what can we learn from their various programs? Well, actually, here in Malaysia, we've already embarked on some projects to help with this. The Ministry of Health actually has nurses that go out to schools to talk about general health and also dental health, and we're trying to incorporate mental health into that. And uh, IMU is actually in, it's, it's starting its own project with some of the schools as well. Uh, we call it the Adolescent Health Program, where we're going to also focus on mental health issues among students as well as teachers and edu- uh, educate teachers as well. Right. How has the reception been with students? Because, you know, when you talk about mental health, a lot of people think of the stigma. Yeah. And may not want to, you know partake or take part in, in these programs? Well, you'd be surprised. Younger people actually are more open to talking about mental health than, you know, seniors are. Mm. You know, we all sort of shy away and don't want to talk about suicide and all the other taboo things. But younger people are more open to talking about this and they want to have that opportunity. And to facilitate that, we've got an organisation in Australia called Headspace, which was founded by uh, one of the mental health areas looking at early psychosis. And Headspace is a, is a place where people can go to and talk about the problems they've got. And, and, the, and teenagers are much more willing to go there than, say, to a traditional doctor or mental health service. Mm-hmm. So a really good initiative. It is indeed. Now, coming up, it looks like employer kindness can improve performance and mental health at the workplace. Well, duh. We'll <laughs> be discussing that with these. Psychiatrists next here on Light. 
With me on Mind Matters this morning, Dr. Peter Nori, former chief psychiatrist from Canberra, Australia, and Dr. Philip George, consultant psychiatrist at IMU and addiction medicine specialist. And it looks like a study from Penn State University found that a simple gesture of kindness from employers in the form of fresh fruit added to employees' daily lunches was a morale booster and improved employees' mental health. So just judging based on that small gesture, I mean, even other gestures such as listening to feedback and yep. uh, you know understanding various things such as mm. deadlines and and whatnot could be even better for the employee don't you think oh absolutely <laughs> well we spend half our lives at work and if work is not in a conducive environment and the people are not actually supportive then that's a huge stress on an individual it has an impact on their physical and their mental health